0: And the full interview archive is also available at youtube.com slash Scott Horton Show. All right, you guys, on the line, I've got the great Patrick Coburn, of course, um, award-winning Middle East correspondent for The Independent and author of Chaos and Caliphate. And his latest book is War in the Age of Trump. And he's got this really important one. I hope you'll read it. It's at counterpunch.org. London and Washington are being propelled by hubris, just as Putin was. Welcome back to the show, Patrick. How are you doing? I'm doing good. Good to be back. Good, good. Very great to talk to you again. So really important piece that you write here. You start off with World War II and a comparison to America's policy toward Japan in 1941 before the Pearl Harbor attack. What are you getting at here? Well, uh, you know, the confrontation with Japan
1: imposing economic sanctions, thinking the Japanese are going through a retreat, they don't. The the same thing happened with uh, Saddam Hussein in Iraq in 1990. And it seemed to me Putin did much the same. You know, all these wars were kind of assumed that somebody would step
0: back when in fact they stepped forward. Yeah, very good point. So, and that seems to be the case really on all sides here in the war in Ukraine, right?
1: Yeah, I mean, you know, it's a pretty extraordinary war. Extraordinary that it was launched by Putin on the assumption that, you know, his not very large army was going to face no political or military resistance in Ukraine. I thought he might attack Ukraine. I didn't think he'd attack Ukraine under such ludicrous ideas as that. And, of course, things sort of fell apart almost immediately. We had the sort of attack from all directions, none of them very strong, none of them got anywhere. Now now we have the second round down in Donbass. And then we have, which again doesn't seem to be getting anywhere very far, although they captured uh, Mariupol and quite a lot of prisoners. And the question is, will we have a third round. Also, what will happen in Russia? Will it be, will they have national mobilization? It's pretty extraordinary that Putin went ahead with this sort of special military operation and recently treated it like that. There hasn't been any national mobilization like uh, Ukraine. Ukraine was preventing anybody of military age leaving the country, mobilized their reserve. Putin never did that. Will that happen now? But also, the point I was trying to make is this sort of triumphalism. That you see in all the, uh, certainly in the media, I see, American and British, is leading. It seems to me to a sort of extraordinary, sort of hubris and arrogant thinking. Russia can be uh, defeated uh, easily, that, or that if we can have a stalemate in Ukraine. It doesn't much matter. I think it matters a lot because I think you end up with a stalemate like that in Syria, in which the whole country is devastated.
0: Yeah. All right. So there's so many points to bring up there. If we can go back to just how the battle's going now, I saw that the Russians, I guess, have I'm not exactly sure the extent of this, but supposedly they have taken the town of Kherson, which is looks to be on the map, like sort of the New Orleans of the Trans the Dnieper River there and not very far at all from Odessa. And then Odessa itself is not very far from Transnistria, this breakaway province of Moldova on the Ukrainian and Moldovan border there. And there's been some violence there, at least in Transnistria. So I wonder if you think that the Russians' goals, I'm I'm sorry to ask you to predict, does it look like their goals now are to push all the way through and take the entire southern coast and connect the so-called land bridge that they have connected to Crimea so far? And do you think they'll keep going and, and try to connect to Transnistria there?
1: I'm sure they'd like to, but, you know, so far they haven't been able to. They don't seem to have the enough soldiers to do that. The Ukraine has been heavily supplied by weapon with weapons by uh, the U.S. and the NATO powers. It's very difficult to see that happening. But has Putin abandoned these ambitions? It doesn't appear so. But they'd have to actually do these things. They'd have to sort of have national mobilization. They'd have to redirect industry to supply the armed forces. They'd have to probably introduce martial law. They'd have to sort of go in for a total war in a way that they haven't uh, so far. Otherwise, they'll be caught up in a sort of stalemate, which in some ways will be like, you know, compare with Syria. But I don't think in Syria, you know, it could be a sort of marginalized or it was within, within one not very big country. But I think I think it would be difficult to have the same sort of stalemate in Ukraine because of the, the question of would NATO try to break the Russian blockade of the Ukrainian ports, which is preventing the export of Ukrainian grain would the Russians attack Western Ukraine to prevent NATO supplies getting through? Mm. You know, there are all sorts of ways that the situation could escalate rapidly. And there's still, I don't know about the US, but there's still this sort of strange, what I refer to as a 1914 mood in uh, a lot of Europe. I think it may be A, a little, but not much, that sort of, you know, people... Wanting to fight the war, not sort of thinking it through the, you know, the whole question of will the Russians use nuclear weapons? If they're pushed in a corner, you know, it hardly makes a headline. And, you know, in the 50s, 60s, 70s, you had enormous sort of anti-war movements or people really worried about the use of nuclear weapons. And now it's dismissed, and it's dismissed by people who, would, on the one hand, will tell you Putin is a sort of mad monster and uh, the uh, to have invaded Ukraine. But at the same time, when you say, "Well, what about the, you know possible use of nuclear weapons?" Oh, you know, either they say, "Well, you're a Putin proxy to even bring it up," or that somehow Putin is a kind of going to be a pussycat. You know. In using them, he's going to be rational, he's going to be cautious, and so you can't have both. You know, he's either a mad monster or he's a a timid fellow, but he's not both. So it's a very sort of strange atmosphere, I think, in the U.S. and Europe at the moment.
0: Yeah, well, really on that point, there's so many great points to follow up here, but on the unreality of it all, it does remind me a lot of 20 years ago. Where you got a lot of slogans and a lot of bluster, and nobody wants to really think very deeply about this because they don't like the answers. Just like you're talking about here, where they're sort of acting like nukes aren't a potential problem here. When obviously they are. We all know that they are, but you know what we'll do? We'll just go ahead and see how far we can push this anyway. Wow, and there and there seems to be uh I'm sorry I forget who I'm plagiarizing here, but I just was reading something, a take I agree with that said that Uh, Oh, it was Jeffrey Sachs was saying he knows of not a single American senior official of any party you could throw in congressmen, I guess, at the highest levels who are insisting on negotiating here. Not one. The idea is it's not even and, and here we are. We're 13 weeks into the war. It's not even a controversy that we're not negotiating here. I guess it would be a controversy if someone proposed negotiations. Instead, we're supposed to somehow win this war, I guess. What does that mean?
1: Yeah, exactly. does it mean overthrowing Putin, but, you know, you also have sort of uh, senior American intelligence people saying that Putin, they don't think Putin would use nuclear weapons unless uh, they feel the Russian state is in danger or or unless they feel the regime is in danger. On the other side of the line, you have people who say, yeah, we want to get rid of the regime. We want regime change, you know. So you don't, you know... (laughs) You have to consider these two positions and the likely outcome, you know, which is pretty horrendous. And I don't, I find it difficult to understand uh, why there's this sort of war hysteria. And, you know, in the meantime, you know, in Europe, prices are zooming up, obviously of uh, fuel, of uh, of almost everything. You know, every other country in the world is being affected you know places that countries that uh, never even heard of ukraine like you know south sudan suddenly they're not getting uh, they're facing high prices for any food they might like to import so uh, people are being pushed into malnutrition and so forth yeah. so you know it's a bizarre it's a bizarre situation and and also you know what exactly is happening in russia nobody really knows what's happening within the russian elite it's pretty clear that Putin, you know, made a disastrous decision in launching the invasion. He seems to have made fairly disastrous decisions afterwards, of uh, sort of claiming that this was sort of not quite a war and not behaving as if it was. You seem to have sort of criticism, not from the guys who want to end the war or think it's a bad idea to launch the war, but criticize the well, don't directly criticise Putin, but criticise the government in general for uh, not fighting a total, for amateurism and so forth. How far does this pose a threat to Putin? Well, you know, it's a bit like Saddam Hussein. I think it's a bit like Saddam Hussein invading Kuwait in 1990. You know, it was a disastrous decision. He was uh, tremendously defeated, you know, much more than the Russians have beaten Ukraine yet he's still climbed onto power for 13 years. Could the same thing happen with Putin? Nor is there an obvious successor. But, you know, one should be careful about this. because I always feel with uh, coups and putches against leaders, the one that succeeds is the one that nobody sees coming, that hmm. everybody says wasn't possible for the following reasons. So I don't think you can entirely rule that out if Putin continues to preside over this sort of shambles.
0: That's right. I mean, if you listen to the, you know, an apple bombs of the world, then regime change would automatically result in an improvement from the Western point of view. We would get a compliant government that would then do what D.C. says and we'll have another Yeltsin and get him drunk and it'll be fine again. And they don't even broach the possibility that you might get a real tough guy. You know, maybe uh, Putin Ooh. isn't Hitler. Maybe he's Hindenburg. And we should settle for I that. I think he's more like Mussolini, actually. I think it's more sort of, you know,
1: sort of Mussolini sort of launched military ventures, you know, in Ethiopia and uh, attacked Greece famously in uh, 1941 with rather disastrous results for himself. And, uh, you know, this, I think, uh, if you look at Putin and you look at Mussolini as that same sort of militaristic posture, you know, the same sort of hubris. And, you know, but one can think of all sorts of historic analogies, you know, why did he do it, one asks. Well, you know, the simplest explanation is that Russia had a lot of grievances. Yes, they felt they were being pushed by NATO, but also that Putin had been 22 years in power had a high opinion of his own abilities and was surrounded by sort of advisors who were sort of courtiers who told him what he wanted to hear. So this led him to sort of launch this disastrous escapade.
0: Sure, I mean, motive to do it is one thing, but that's not the only reason to make a decision. The idea that, you know, it's going to be easy would probably play into it. And it does seem that, I don't know, was he convinced by some russian neoconservatives that he was going to be greeted with flowers and candy at least in the east of the country that this is just going to be great and because it seems like that would be the reason that they didn't call in the massive air power to soften up the forces in the east before they rolled in the way they did it was just for pr reasons right but then that didn't work out. i guess
1: well. so they can obviously just completely underestimated
0: but do you remember a rather large invasion that happened in
1: 2003 when uh, Lots of guys were going to say the U.S. Army was going to be sort of greeted with flowers and sweets when it arrived in Baghdad. And everything would be fine, you know. And it wasn't. And presumably Putin got similar advice. But I don't think, I think that, you know, there's a lack of realism about this. What if uh, Russians suffer a defeat? Will it be a final defeat? You know, will they march on Moscow? I doubt it, you know. Will Putin go? And if he goes, will he be, you know, will there be somebody who's a lot tougher than he is, as you just said? The, you know, what resources do they have left? Or is the, you know, the whole regime so sort of rotted by corruption and despotism that it can't really fight back?
0: Yeah. Well, Um, I mean, look, I mean, Patrick, even if they just stop at Crimea, they have, I mean, I guess it depends on your map, but the greater... Donbass region there includes all the land, you know, Mariupol and that whole Azov coast there all the way to Crimea. And they've got that, the freshwater resources. If they just called it quits here and said, "Okay, we're securing the independence of the Donbass, then the question would still remain whether the Ukrainians would try to stay at war to fight that and kick them all the way out. But it seems like the Russians at least would be able to hold on to the east. They've sure got it now, don't they? I guess they lost our key. Yeah,
1: I mean, the, the, these things could happen, you know, you see. So, you know, it depends how much the Ukrainians believe their own press clippings, really, or they see on television. Yeah. It depends far, on the uh, American
0: weapons, too, doesn't it? A lot. It seems like that's already making a difference over there.
1: Sure, yeah. You know, but it's clear, you know, that the Russians, you know, what's the Russian? At some degrees, this is weapons, but it's also, you know, the Russians... The the biggest shortage seems to have been infantry, which they just didn't have the guys who were in the trucks who were going to take part in the invasion. And to a substantial degree, they still don't. Could they change that? Well, possibly, but it's getting pretty late to do that while Ukraine is fully mobilized. Yeah. The danger from the Ukrainian point of view, I think, is that one, that this goes to their head that they sort of think we're going to completely defeat the Russians and let the war rumble on, you know, but wars are notorious for people thinking they're on the verge of complete victory. And a year later, they've been, you know, suffered a shattering defeat when all wars are a bit uh, like that. But there's another question, you know, which comes up in, compared to Syria or wars in the Middle East that you know, on the one hand, you get support from allies outside. You get weapons, you get advisors and so forth. But you also, to some degree, greater or lesser degree, uh, become their proxies and import their quarrels. So Syria became this sort of arena in which lots of quarrels are being fought out. which shouldn't have much to do with Syria, you know, between the Turks and the Kurds between the americans and the iranians you know the they, part of this was in iran but basically it became the arena for a whole series of interrelated med- uh, wars military conflicts mm-hmm. and it became very difficult to disentangle them and to end the war now could the same thing happen in ukraine you know as you you just mentioned you but know, nobody in Senior official in Washington wants to negotiate or end the war. That might be good for the U.S., but is it good for Ukraine? You know, yeah. also these wars go on. You know, you just can... More and more things get blown up. More yeah. and more of the people leave become refugees. Who do you... You know, you lose people who go abroad. You uh, you begin to... You know, I remember Iraq, All the doctors went... The people who went to the university, the people who could get, you know, after a bit, sticking it out for a bit, you think, how about applying for that job in New Zealand or, uh, you know, or in, uh, San Francisco or something?
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So, you know, countries begin to sort of begin to lose their best educated people, their most skilled workers. People can get a job elsewhere, right? And a lot of this devastation—if you, know, you use heavy artillery for long enough. You know, you basically pulverize city after city. And again, you know, there are questions. That's what's so strange about this war is the Russians invaded, but they didn't sort of, they didn't, for instance, try to destroy the Ukrainian infrastructure. If you cast your mind back to 1991, when the U.S. attacked Iraq, they, you know, the bombing, I was in Baghdad at the time of the bombing, what did they do? You know, they attacked the power lines. They dropped these uh, long sort of uh, wires, shorted all the uh, all the overhead power lines. They uh, hit the oil refi- well refineries, they hit the power stations. You know, you can pretty, there are various parts of the infrastructure that can't be hidden and can't be moved and which you can destroy with missiles pretty easily. That hasn't actually so happened yet in a systematic way. It still could happen. How far is that the Russians didn't want to do it? How far is it that they just so disorganized they didn't get uh, they weren't able to do it effectively? Mm-hmm. We still, still don't really know about that.
0: Hang on, just one second. Hey guys, I had some wasps in my house, so I shot them to death with my trusty Bug Assault 3.0 model with the improved salt reservoir and bar safety. I don't have a deal with them, but the show does earn a kickback every time you get a Bug Assault or anything else you buy from Amazon.com by way of the link in the right-hand margin on the front page at scotthorton.org. So keep that in mind. And don't worry about the mess. Your wife will clean it up. Green Mill Supercritical is the award-winning leader in cannabis oil extraction. Their machines are absolute top of the line. They simply work better and accomplish more for less than any competitor in the world. We are talking anywhere from a couple hundred thousand dollars for the base model and up. So this is for serious business people here. But the price, as they say, will be worth it. Green Mill Supercritical customers' investments pay for themselves oftentimes in just weeks. Simple enough for almost any operator. Deep enough for master technicians. Their new novel techniques for in-line real-time winterization are leaving their competitors in the key. That's GreenMillsupercritical.com. Man, I wish I was in school so I could drop out and sign up for Tom Woods' Liberty Classroom instead. Tom has done such a great job on putting together a classical curriculum for everyone from junior high schoolers on up through the postgraduate level, and it's all very reasonably priced. Just make sure you click through from the link in the right margin at scotthorton.org. Tom Woods' Liberty Classroom. Real history. Real economics. Real education. Yeah, I mean, you have weapons coming from the far west of the country, a nation the size of Texas or the size of Afghanistan or France, if people want a comparison, something like that. And they're coming from the—and it's a pretty long-ways country laying down on its side, too. Coming from the far west of the country all the way to the battlefields in the east across how many bridges, you know, Mm. that that are still standing. Again, that seems—I guess the idea was—I guess the idea was that was part of the PR, was we're going to come in soft because we expect the people in the east of the country to be glad we're here and then they didn't really have much of a plan b or c i guess because they you know yeah
1: but that's you know that's pretty stupid and also you know, it is stupid then again it's the 20th anniversary of you know they're pretty nasty because they arrived maybe on sort of for a few hours they believe what they've been told you know beforehand that you're going to be greeted with some flowers and sweets but you know, somebody shoots at them, you know, maybe they have sort of shoot at each other, you know, yeah. as often happens in, in, in wars, you know, one lot of Russian troops are shooting at another lot of uh, Russian troops and thinks they're being attacked by, uh, you know, by Ukrainian villagers. Then they start running up people and shooting them. You know, occupations are always pretty brutal and they always produce arrest. Now, this isn't to excuse the the Russians at all. But, you know, they seem to have sort of got the worst of all possible worlds. They came in, they imagined that they'd be welcomed. You know, Putin was calling on the Ukrainian army to get rid of Zelensky and uh, lay down its arms. You know, all this is the stuff of fantasy. And then, you know, when the troops come under attack, yeah, they start shooting civilians. I mean, I've never sort of seen an occupation or invasion where this didn't happen. You know, it's used to, in Baghdad and America, it very dangerous to get close to them. After the first few suicide bombings, because any car that got close to an American vehicle, they'd first shoot at the engine, then they'd shoot at the driver. The, you know, the British army in uh, in Northern Ireland, in Belfast, a famous, I think, called the Ballymurphy massacre, which seems to have been the result of Uh, Two groups of British uh, started when two groups of British uh, paratroopers started accidentally shooting at each other. Imagine they were being shot at by the local inhabitants, a number of whom they then shot dead. You know that this is this has been this is the pattern of all wars. And I don't, you know, one thing that strikes me is just the reportage of this war. It's sort of again, it's sort of 1914 type stuff. You know, it's perfectly reasonable. We're talking about Syria to say that the Russians are behaving as, uh, before devastating places like they did in Damascus or uh, East to with uh, artillery and uh, attacking civilian areas but uh, the, you know that's true but that <laughs> you know if you go to the east of Syria you to come to the city of Raqqa which is completely devastated a city of about 400,000 which is completely devastated from one end to the other which was primarily an you know, Americans Power, power, American air power, or you can go to Mosul, you know, the uh, west side of the city, the old city, is just a great heap of ruins. Again, that's mostly uh, Americans and sort of Iraqi artillery. You start using artillery in built-up areas, you know, that's what happened. Now, of course, this doesn't excuse everything, but if you have total sort of demonization of the Russians, it gets very difficult to end this type of war. And That's what I find pretty depressing, that it sort of reminds me of all the wars I've seen, mostly in the Middle East, in which one side becomes convinced they're winning or have won, which they haven't, and these wars go on endlessly. And the sort of, and I think this has gotten since I sort of first started reporting wars, is that the, the media sort of divides everything into white hats and black hats so it becomes very difficult to negotiate an end to this. I mean, in, in Damascus, you know, diplomats, including American diplomats who wanted to, to see if they could arrange some sort of truces and ceasefires at the beginning of the war in 2011 would say openly you know, that the, the press coverage was such that even sort of talking to the government side to arrange ceasefire became sort of politically impossible and the coverage from Ukraine seems to me to be to be the same the you know and just you know what's the what's the policy of this war you have this enormous mass mobilization everywhere but you know as you said yourself is the aim to defend ukraine that used to be it and anybody who said differently that it was to regime change russia was denounced as sort of uh, an apologist for uh, putin and three months later, the policy is um, seems to be at least largely regime change in Moscow. Anybody who disagrees with that is an apologist for, for Putin, you know. So this is very uh, crude stuff. And, you know. And also, I think there's a sense that we've seen the worst of this war, but actually... You know, so far Russia hasn't been uh, waging total war, which it could do, presumably by destroying the uh, Ukrainian infrastructure with missiles. That's not easy to do, but it's doable. They could do that. They could have a national mobilization. You know, all these things could, could still happen. And... There's this really rather extraordinary sort of happy-go-lucky attitude by governments, by Washington, of thinking, you know, just just let this go on.
0: Hmm. Well, Patrick, Colonel Douglas McGregor, who's a kind of a conservative old anti-interventionist, retired Army officer, he had said from the beginning, and he said this to me again recently, that here any time now, the Germans are going to insist that we wind this thing down, right? As you already mentioned, consequences for, you know, prices and availability of foodstuffs for the people of Europe is already in jeopardy here. This is already on the table and uh, not even to mention south of the equator and the rest, as you said. At some point, the Germans are going to have to insist that, look, we can't just fight an Afghanistan or a Syrian-style you know, dirty war in Eastern Europe, right on Russia's border. And not just with tow missiles, but with javelins and stingers and all of this stuff. And for some pretty radical moderate rebels there in Ukraine as well. I mean, at some point, somebody's got to tell just as... Merkel came and told Obama, "Obama, I'm going to go sign this Minsk two deal with Putin," and he said, "Okay, okay, right." It wasn't his idea; it was Merkel insisted on that, and not that they ever implemented it. But you know what I mean. But so I'm waiting for that to kick in, where somebody well, tells Joe Biden it, he it has to cool off.
1: But it could also be an escalation. I
0: I'm mean, sorry. I'm sorry idea. say well, again.
1: We, well, it could be a, the response to the war going on. You know, of a uh, sort of. Basically, a stalemate. I mean, you know, a lot of violence, but a stalemate with the Black Sea ports, of Ukraine's Black Sea ports, still blockaded and so forth, might be pressure for a de-escalation. But given the current mood, it might also be pressure. There might also there will also be a pressure for an escalation. You know, send more missiles to sink Russian ships or intervene directly to lift the blockade. The uh, you know that seems to me. Just as feasible, perhaps even more feasible. But yeah. again, what's so so worrying that these sort of great decisions seem to be sort of taken in a sort of cavalier, sort of uncaring way, as if they didn't uh, matter too much, and without any uh, counterpush from from anyone. The uh, and that's true, and, and as far as I can see, in America, it's certainly true in uh, in Britain, and in much of Western Europe. Yeah. So,
0: Patrick, in your well, article, you know, I'm kind of
1: influenced. I'm mean, influenced, Scott, by the fact that most wars I've seen just don't end. You know, people think they've won, haven't won. You know, they just go on and on. Whether it's in Lebanon whether it's Syria, Iraq, or Afghanistan, yeah. The um
0: and uh, let yeah, me I let me ask you about that because I know that you've covered well, more than a dozen wars, right? Sure. Yeah. Yeah. And and. You know, people, I think, I don't want anyone to take this the wrong way because, you know, there is kind of a common theme here in the media where Ukrainian lives matter so much more than Iraqi ones and this kind of thing. When, you know, life is cheap to a Westerner in the Orient, that kind of deal. But my point is not that so much as the level of risk in having a proxy war with Russia. I mean, frankly, America could beat up on Saddam Hussein all day and and even lose to an insurgency there without any real cost to our army at all. We just had to leave, but you know what I mean? It's not like our infantry was decimated, True. right? So, but here we're talking the level of risk here is just absolutely out of control. It's like having the Vietnam War or something right on Russia's border and it's so much more important and Yet they're just going on as though they're just picking on Saddam Hussein, who they know good and well can't really do anything about it. And that's the part that is really unsettling: is the unreality. I, I know they're going to lie to me all day, but they seem to even be lying to themselves about who it is that they're messing with here.
1: Yeah, I think that you know, I there are other contributory reasons. You know, Russia was meant to have a powerful army. You know, but it. That people were frightened of, you know, but then it goes into Ukraine and falls flat on its face, you know. So maybe that sort of reduced the level of uh, anxiety about what the Russians did. Maybe it'll go on doing that, but maybe not, you know. You know, nobody, nobody's very keen, for instance, to invade North Korea because they, you know, they think that nuclear weapons will be used almost immediately. But somehow, the the sort of the fear level of what Putin might do, what might, Russia might do, has gone right down. Perhaps propelled by their failure so far, and you know, there's just you know, thinking back to Afghanistan 2001, too. You know, there was the same triumphalism, but the, the war already wasn't over, it's was scarcely been fought. You know, the Taliban had gone home. Defeat of Saddam Hussein. Because he'd been considered, you know, the guy who was responsible for all everything goes wrong in Iraq, but the guy, you know, what followed him was actually far more dangerous. The so, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a rather sort of similar mood, and but very little sort of concern about, him. and for a long quite a long time, you know, the Ukrainians were kind of Zelensky was kind of playing things down, but. More recently, you know, it, it sounds as if they've some, sort of a certain arrogance was taking over there as well. The so I think the you know situation is is pretty bad, is pretty unexpected, and full of sort of nasty surprises. And yeah, you know, just like. <clears throat> You know, it's worth recalling that almost everything which the media thought and pundits thought would happen in Afghanistan, Iraq, Syria, Libya, it didn't happen. In fact, the reverse happened. The and you know, so there's quite good reasons for thinking they'll get it wrong again. And that doesn't. I mean, you know, the you look at the quality of the leaders. You know, you look at Putin. Seems you know pretty pretty crackers. The. Living in something of a fantasy world, you know, Boris Johnson, you know, hopping from, you know, sloganeering the whole time, trying to stay in office, you know, but pretty a weak, shambolic government. You look at Biden, you know, looks pretty feeble and so forth. I don't know how far do these people do, you know, Johnson can say obviously has political advantages from doing his sort of Winston Churchill act. Yeah, and rushing about Europe, Biden. You know, does this do Biden much good in in America? As we sort of politically, you know, any polls I see, it it it, it doesn't. And I doubt even I mean in Britain, uh, you know, the cost of living is shooting up. You know, ten percent. I think people's sort of interest in the war is ebbing, or in other ways, being overlaid by, you know, concern about this sort of what looks like an economic calamity.
0: Mm -hmm. After all, Um, Patrick, people don't even know where Ukraine is. It's so far from here. It's on the other side of Slovakia from here. I mean, it's just, it mm -hmm. might as well be the far side of the moon. So it's pretty hard to keep people interested in something Mm -hmm. like that, you know? Most people thought it was the Ukraine. Isn't that a region of Russia anyway? You know, that kind of thing.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I think so. I I don't, uh, I mean, I mean, I can't think of any war ever reported that had a sort of good result or pretty well for either side because it's uncontrollable. Uh, it has too many moving parts. I think politicians, are, the qualities that make a successful politician make a really bad warlord because they're dealing with a situation with which they're on. they'll get a lot of plaudits, you know, for being uh, tough with the enemy. But, you know, they're in a crisis with so many moving parts. Mm-hmm. Uh, moving parts they have no experience of but they don't really know which way it's going to go they're sort of prisoners of events and you know maybe the US thinks you know this is a chance to become the superpower once again and that certainly worries you know Chinese you know not just Chinese but the India you know Turkey and others that they quite liked the uh, Russia to be there as now alternate, alternate sort of sort of superpower of these nucleus that worries there, but it's a situation in which there are you know so many calamitous things could happen that you know it's pretty it's impossible to predict. But again, you know we come back to a point we were making discussing earlier on is what's extraordinary is the sort of just lack of alarm at any level. Yeah. The risks involved in, in this
0: war. Yeah, it's true. You know, I have a semi regular guest spot on a cable TV news show, and I try, I skipped it one time I didn't have a chance, but every single time I try to say it's been this long since our Secretary of State, Antony Blinken, has spoken with Sergey Lavrov, the foreign minister. Mm-hmm. And it seems to me like that is. The single most important political question on the planet facing all of mankind is when is the secretary of state sitting down with the foreign minister in Geneva that they can come to an end to this war? How can how could there be any other priority in all of world politics other than stopping the fighting here as absolutely soon as possible? And I'm the only one saying it on there. I mean, Mm -hmm. it's just. That's not the narrative. The narrative is Jack Keane says we just need to pour in some more javelins, Cha-Ching.
1: Yeah. Well, it's sort of this idea of achieving military victory, but what would it look like? You know, it's not really there. And it's a really great sort of gigantic leap into the dark.
0: Hang on just one second. Hey, y'all, the audio book of my book, Enough Already, Time to End the War on Terrorism is finally done. Yes, of course, read by me. It's available at Audible, Amazon, Apple Books, and soon on Google Play and whatever other options there are out there. It's my history of America's war on terrorism from 1979 through today. Give it a listen and see if you agree. It's time to just come home. Enough already. Time to end the war on terrorism. The audiobook. Hey guys, I've had a lot of great webmasters over the years. But the team at ExpandDesigns.com have by far been the most competent and reliable. Harley Abbott and his team have made great sites for the show and the Institute, and they keep them running well, suggesting and making improvements all along. Make a deal with ExpandDesigns.com for your new business or news site. They will take care of you. Use the promo code Scott and save $500. That's ExpandDesigns.com. Hey, guys, Scott Horton here for Listen and Think Libertarian Audiobooks. As you may know, the audiobook of my new book, Enough Already, Time to End the War on Terrorism, is finally out. It's co-produced by our longtime friends at Listen and Think Libertarian Audiobooks. For many years now, Derek Sheriff over there at Listen and Think has offered lifetime subscriptions to anyone who donates $100 or more to The Scott Horton Show at scotthorton.org slash donate or to the Libertarian Institute at libertarianinstitute.org slash donate. And they've got a bunch of great titles, including Inside Syria by the late, great Reese Ehrlich. That's listenandthink.com. Well, now, wait a minute. If I was the Secretary of State, I would just say, essentially, the original Russian proposal with, obviously, some land swaps, as the Israelis would say, some kind of, you know, wiggle room in here, but essentially... Crimea has been independent. That ship sailed in 1783, if not 2014. Forget that. And the Donbass, you're not going to be able to kick the Russians out of there without keeping the fighting going for an infinite period of time. So just let the Donbass go anyway and let the Russians be happy with that. And America's not going to give them a war guarantee anyway. So we'll probably give them some weapons, but. They could promise not to join NATO. We, we could promise not to bring them into NATO. And that's a good start. And we could offer verification for our missile launchers in Poland that we're not. Yeah, but I, I, in think, there, there, I you know? think,
1: Scott, that, you know, at this stage, Ukraine is going to ask for a guarantee, you know, yeah. a cast-eye guarantee that it doesn't get invaded again. That's perfectly reasonable. You know, there's no doubt Putin has created the situation which he claimed he was most threatened by, you know the of you know he has in most senses brought nato into ukraine you know he may not they may not formally join nato and you know under the protected under what's called the fifth article that an attack on ukraine is attack on nato but they're you know they're clearly going to ask for guarantee of their frontier because reasonably enough they think what if we get attacked again? You know, what if Russia reorganizes and, and uh, decides to have a second go? So, you know, that's that's not unreasonable. Things that could have been done before the war can, can you know, can no longer be done. That's true. The, you know, the Minsk-2 agreement is that sort of, you know, it's kind of, it's kind of, it has become sort of ancient history. I think there was a moment during the first sort of month of the war, or maybe it could have, been uh, revived and there could have been some sort of agreement but you know the, the Russian Putin's failure was so complete and he clearly feels that you know if he doesn't win this war you know he's fighting for his own existence so you know I think that would be that would be pretty difficult the but you know there's less attempt to even put together the framework of a peace agreement. You know, the most any conflict I can think of. The, and, um, you know, what you say, that's something I that's true in the U.S., something certainly true in the uh, U.K.
0: Yeah, I think it was uh, the British prime minister who went over there, Boris Johnson, and told them, don't negotiate, right at the time when there really was a chance to. He told them to stick it out. Yeah, yeah, you compared him to that, but
1: I think think that Putin also, you know, seems to be living in this fantasy world. You know, there was a moment when the Ukrainians said, Well, Crimea will push it for 15 years and then we'll discuss it, you know, so they weren't going to do that. There seemed a possibility that uh, an agreement could be reached over Donbass. The Russians withdrew from the north and sent their troops. Around, but you know, that there seemed at the end of April to be Ukrainians seem to be offering real things, the Russians seem to be sort of negotiating, then it disappeared. Both sides think they can still make gains on the battlefield, which you know may or may not be true, but we'll see how that goes. The and but I think that people still vastly underestimate how. How dangerous this is you know you have to you know people suppose there's one tactical nuclear weapon used in west ukraine and what's going to be the result people say well it's not it wouldn't be very big you know so forth but once you just the very fact of a nuclear weapon even a small tactical nuclear weapon be used you know one reaction is going to be a gigantic flood of refugees out of ukraine
0: and i have to tell you because uh, uh, you know i read about these war games where they said look This is the Russian doctrine is escalate to de-escalate. And if we get in a war, we use one nuke from the Russian point of view. They use one small nuke to convince us to back off. But we have to convince them we will never back off. And if they use a nuke, then we'll use a bigger nuke. Now they better de-escalate. That's the American response to their presumed Russian policy here.
1: Sure, yeah. But it's all sort of I mean the answer is they don't know what they do. And I think one thing I want to keep in mind is just that, you know, that if you look at all the leaders in Europe and Russia and America, you know, so a very sort of weak guys. These a very sort of governments that, you know, there's not a lot you can say about them. The, you know, Boris Johnson, is, you know, is currently kind of screwing up the peace agreement in, in Northern Ireland, you know. The, you know, this is a kind of pretty frivolous guy with a pretty frivolous government the idea that these guys are taking decisions about nuclear peace and war is pretty frightening. Yeah. Hey, without getting
0: too far into that, could you explain a little what you mean about him ruining the peace agreement in Northern Ireland? Because that seemed to be the one thing the U.S. government did right in the last 30 years I could think of, was help negotiate that thing. Well, you know, we had an election
1: on 5th of May, which in Fein became the largest party in the North. Um, now... Johnson is threatening to unilaterally uh, drop key parts of the Northern Ireland Protocol, which puts the sort of trade barrier between Britain, mainland Britain, and Northern Ireland. But you've got to have a barrier somewhere. So would it be sort of within Ireland? Well, that's not, you know, that wouldn't be acceptable to the Irish nationalists, North or South. You know, this was a, a long running dispute which had been, called set, set, been sort of settled, largely settled through the Good Friday Agreement. And suddenly all these issues have been opened up again. You know, the British government is threatening just to, to uh, walk away from, you know, an agreement that was signed by Johnson. You know, what will he'll push back against the EU when he, when he's in the past, when he's done this, you know, normally he's ended up being, being humiliated because the, it's the EU has got the big battalions these days. Uh, Is just stronger than Britain. You know, would that happen again? But it's all pretty frivolous, dangerous, frivolous but dangerous stuff. The uh, and it's very difficult. You know, to, does the British government actually see this? After you know, one of the big achievements of perhaps the biggest achievement of the British government over the last fifty years was to negotiate an end to the troubles in Northern Ireland. But all those sort of the building blocks of that are all being sort of thrown away. I don't think violence is going to break out again, but, you know, it's going to be a peculiar situation. The largest party in the North is Sinn Féin. The largest party in the South, the next election is likely to be Sinn Féin. You know, the, the peace agreement in the North depended on good relations between Catholics and Protestants or nationalists and unionists, good relations between the British government and the Irish government. Uh, good relations with the EU, all these things are being undermined. You know, it's only a microcosm, but it it shows a sort of level of judgment which is, you know, pretty dar. And when one thinks about that, you think, well, what if the same level of judgment is applied to uh, what's happening in Ukraine and Eastern Europe? The, you know, what will the outcome be? And... I suppose that Johnson would like to think that Ukraine, you know, is going to be what Falklands was to the Falkland War was to Margaret Thatcher. But I doubt it, but Britain isn't fully engaged there. You know, there's a sort of terrifying, or well, for many of much of the population, a terrifying increase in the cost of living. You know, people unable to eat their houses and or having to choose between doing that and uh, eating three times a day. Yeah, seriously.
0: Well, now, so lastly here, you have a little aside in your article, Patrick, about the Spanish flu, as it was called, the Woodrow Wilson flu of World War One, and also even the outbreak of AIDS and what all that might have to do with war. So what? Oh, yeah, this is sort of
1: uh, something I did, this extra things that get sort of tacked on the bottom. I write at the bottom of the articles, which are rather disparate thoughts. Yeah, no, I, interesting, I, I didn't realize this, I thought AIDS was much more, HIV-AIDS was a fairly modern development, but it began where it was first sort of located in uh, 1916, and in Kinshasa, in Congo, and what, and it was a sort of outcome of the war. What happened was the, they have identified where it began, I mean, where it transferred from, chimpanzees to humans was in southeast Cameroon in the rainforests and it had been there present for a long time. Then this was a German colony in the first world war. The the British and the allies sent native uh, African troops to as part of a force to uh, fight the uh, Germans. They didn't uh, provide enough food for them so they used their weapons to sort of shoot local wildlife, including the chimpanzees somewhere through infected blood or was. Anyway, it was apparently a Congolese soldier, went back to Kinshasa and had the jump had happened. He had AIDS and it so festered there for, you know, for decades. And then finally, so spread out to the rest of the world, but it was a consequence of, you know, the war. Of well, the First World War, and suddenly guys with guns being in these uh, rainforests, you know, previously, you know, obviously there'd been people there, but they had those narrows and spears, and they um, didn't fight the, uh, didn't go after the chimpanzees, because they're pretty dangerous. Suddenly you had guys
0: with guns who were hungry and
1: shot them, and the jump happened. Anyway, I find it interesting, because I'd never heard that before.
0: Yeah, it's amazing. And of course, you bring up the Spanish flu, too, which as you correctly say in here. It's only called the Spanish flu because they weren't censoring their media at the time. Everybody had the flu, and it was really Woodrow Wilson's fault more than anybody for intervening in that Well, board. it was
1: in these big American training camps that I think it first developed. And you had lots of guys, you know, recruits coming in from the countryside who had no uh, immunity against anything. And it, the flu developed there and spread very rapidly, and then, you know, ships going to carrying troops to Europe, you know, some of them were sort of, you know, full of dead and dying people by the time they got to Europe. And yeah, you're right. I mean, it, this was censored, censored in Britain and so forth and played down. But in uh, in Spain, they didn't censor it and they ended up being called Spanish. Again, another consequence of uh, the First World War. I knew about that. Most people know about that. But HIV, I didn't, uh, and AIDS, I didn't realize that was also an outcome of the First World War.
0: Yeah, I didn't either. And it's interesting you link in, in the piece to a BBC radio uh, documentary about that, too, if people are interested in the origin of that. He's got the link there. And and it's only kind of an aside because you're talking about the unintended, unimaginable consequences of getting into a war. I mean, who would have thought the Scheifen plan included getting AIDS in the Congo, you know? It, <laughs> exactly.
1: No, that's just a frightening thing. You know, who would have thought you know the invasion of Iraq in 2003. You know that eventually this was to powerfully contribute to the creation of Islamic State. You know,
0: yeah.
1: Um, and nobody th- thought that. You know, the uh, so uh, and people are so sort of curiously caught by surprise by the. But you know, all wars means that, as I said, you know. There are so many surprising developments and there are so many moving parts that it's unpredictable. And I think it goes it goes to politicians' heads. I think the kind of person who becomes a politician would really, they all have a sort of greater or less sort of Napoleon complex. They really like the idea of being sort of warlords, of, of which they've got no experience, and they don't see the risks involved. Yeah.
0: All right. Well, listen, I can't tell you how much I appreciate you coming back on the show, Patrick. It's really been great. No, I enjoyed it. I enjoyed it. All right, you guys, that is the great Patrick Coburn from The Independent. That's independent.co.uk. And here he is at his late brother, Alexander Coburn's counterpunch. London and Washington are being propelled by hubris, just as Putin was. The Scott Horton Show anti-war radio can be heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in L.A apsradio.com, antiwar.com, scotthorton.org, and libertarianinstitute.org.